I'm Paul Brady, regional editor at The Cork Report, and this is my podcast, A Northern Wine Odyssey, part of The Cork Report Podcast Network. To listen, search Cork Report in Google or your podcast app of choice. Before we get into this episode, a quick note to wineries about the Finger Lakes International Wine Competition. Wineries, please consider submitting entries to the Finger Lakes International Wine and Spirits Competition. Without question for me, the most important competition out there. This competition is a fundraiser for Camp Good Days. Camp Good Days provides summer camping programs on the beautiful shores of Cuca Lake in Branchport, New York, as well as year-round recreational and support activities in the Rochester, Buffalo, Ithaca, and Syracuse, New York areas for children with cancer, sickle cell anemia, and their entire families. An unfortunate reality is that sickle cell anemia occurs most frequently in people of African and Hispanic descent. Camp Good Days is one of the very few, perhaps the only, program that supports children that have the full-blown disease with the required medical professionals that must be present. At Camp Good Days, participants have the opportunity to regain some of what cancer has taken away from them. While a vast majority of the children who attend reside in New York, Camp Good Days has no geographical boundaries and accepts children from all 50 states and all over the world. No child with cancer is ever turned away. Programs are provided at no additional cost to participants, and 90-plus percent of funds raised go directly to programs. I want to thank my friend and the head judge, Bob Medill, for getting me involved and pushing hard to keep this message alive year-round, and for striving to make sure that this competition is a safe, socially distanced rethinking of wine competitions. And of course, anyone can donate at any time. For more information, visit fliwc-cgd.com. In today's episode, we tackle the topic, how to get the most out of your wine country visit this summer. And we know that all of you are planning to visit wine country this summer because we've heard that there's basically no accommodations left, at least in, in the New York regions, from pretty much now all the way through the end of the year. So my friend Kat Thompson and I tackle the subject of how you can get the most out of your visit. Kat is a creative director, writer, and editor currently based in San Francisco. Her wine writing has appeared in Glamour, GQ, 7x7, and more. She's an unapologetic champagne devotee, a dress collector, rides a Ducati, and is the proud mom of a five-pound Pomeranian named Peaches. Here we go. a part of Cork Report Podcast Media. Thank you as always to Dave Miller for our opening and closing music. Check him out at davemillerguitar.com or wherever you purchase or stream music. Joining me from the Bay Area is Kat Thompson. What's up, Kat? Hello, Paul Brady. Thank you so much for having me. Very grateful for the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you very much for uh, joining us. Um, do you, perchance, have a beverage in front of you? I do have a beverage in front of me. Per my sort of general brand, I am uh, having a half bottle of a French champagne based on the uh, 08 harvest. Good one to have. Indeed. Grow a producer called um, that I love. Delicious. Um, <laughs> I'm curious. So you've been living in California for a few years now. Do you, do you at all, I mean, I mean, California is obviously in the Bay Area in particular, has a great wine scene, so plenty of interna- international options, things to drink. Do you lean in at all to the California wine when you're home? And if you don't, that's totally fine. I'm just sort of curious. <laughs> you're trying to, trying to get people at my door with pitchforks uh, living in the Bay Area and denigrating California wine? No. Um well, I, I have two schools generally. When it comes to sparkling, I'm very much uh, a diehard for French champagne. I also love um, French Cota from Northern Italy, never Prosecco, but um, I do love California wines. I think Pinot Noir in particular, I think California style Pinot Noir is something that um, I enjoy tremendously. So, you know, I, I wouldn't say that there's a lot of glasses of wine that I turn my nose up at, but you know, I think California wine's great. And I think they, they are, the region here tends to be better at some wines than others. Um, I, as I mentioned, am sort of a sparkling wine devotee. So when I'm leaning that way, 
California has a few more challenges than perhaps, say, I don't know, Champagne, maybe you've heard of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I really like all sorts of different wines from California, but it's tough to get in particular a sparkling wine. I mean, there's some delicious sparkling wines from California, but they always have that like California sunshine, that ripeness, like there's, which is delicious in its own right, but it, it's not that colder climate, high acid, a bit more rustic yet elegant, unmistakable champagne style. But we can get a little closer to that style actually in New York. I will totally send you like a mixed case of some, uh, some exciting sparkling wines from around these parts. I would be very, very intrigued. And I think you hit on something that's very, that's very dead on is that, you know, you don't drink a California sparkling wine if what you want is champagne. Um, but if what you want is a California sparkling wine, then absolutely that it, you know, has its very specific terroir and it's, it's wonderful in its, in its place. But um, if I order a glass of champagne in a restaurant and I get served a California sparkling, I will know that it's California sparkling, but I guess that's sort of the point, isn't it? Yeah. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm perhaps a bit unusual in how much I like to lean into the local. It's not like, it's kind of mostly with sort of beverage stuff. I'm not so, I don't know, maybe I am like when I go places or even here, like I just, I like to know like who local musicians are and I want to drink the, not just local wines if I'm in a wine region, but local beer. And uh, there's usually cool distilleries like almost everywhere you go now. So I don't know. That's that's one of the reasons. I mean, I've been in New York for 10 plus years and is probably just one of the reasons I got so hard into New York wine is because I like, you know, as Frank Sinatra saying, want to be a part of it. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, and as if you do lean into that, it's it's kind of neat because you're you're constantly sort of thinking about the agriculture and it makes you think about every year, like what was last summer's growing season like and the year before that. And vintages are fun to think about. And I don't know. There's a whole bunch of reasons I've just sort of like to make sure like, you know, wherever I go, if I go to Alabama and they got a glass of wine from Alabama on the menu, I'm going to try it. I might not order a whole bottle of it, but I'm going to try it. I do know that I may be a bit uh, extreme in that direction and um, uh, than most, but that's, that's cool. So no, I mean, I think I, I, I think that's absolutely dead on. Um, I think the difference between going somewhere and wanting to sort of experience something that's local and then also, the difference between doing that and then living someplace like San Francisco where you can get wine from literally any part of the world and what I decide to sort of keep in my fridge at home. I wouldn't necessarily feel like I have to be loyal to California wines here at home, but absolutely if I'm you know, out, I, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that taking in what a region, specific region offers is such a, such a valuable sort of cultural experience and super important. And then, like, if you were out in the smack of, like, Sonoma or Napa or Santa Barbara or something, like, living every day, it would probably be different. I mean, I'm in the Hudson Valley now, so it's – it's there's so much around you and you just, you're just you just driving and you're like, oh, there's that farm distillery and that cidery and that winery. And, and it just – it sort of almost consumes your life, whereas, like, in New York City, of course, just like in San Francisco, we have wine from all corners of the world just – An embarrassment uh, of riches, know, yes. Right. An embarrassment of riches. Great way to put it. So, I, I mean, you, you're an East Coaster, but you've been on the West Coast for a while and you, you've certainly traveled both for work and, um, and for, your, for leisure. And I'm sort of curious about how you think a bit about the differences between wine regions around the world. I can really only speak for North America and Europe. So have you gone anywhere in the Southern Hemisphere or Asia, I suppose, even? I have my... My main wine experience in the Southern Hemisphere was in South Africa, um, in Stellenbosch, um, which was really phenomenal. And I think I, you know, unlike you, I am not an academic and I was very much there as a, as a tourist and enjoying it. But I, I feel like there are a lot of similarities with sort of the idea of wine tasting as a tourist <laughs> across different, different places and different styles. But obviously the things that make each place unique are, are what you're really looking to discover or things like that. Um, you know, so there's, I can definitely draw similarities between Stellenbosch and Sonoma or, you know, between Stellenbosch and France. But I think that, you know, a lot of the trying to even think how I would describe what was the most different about that experience. I mean, I think that the geography of being down there and the culture of how they kind of relate to wine is sort of interesting and it's subtle. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that I can sum it up easily but um i think the the best regional tastings are ones that give you such a sense of place so 
I, I think all of the wines that I've had in South Africa and I've, I've also had some in South America and of course also France, Italy, Spain, and then the United States. But how did you find it? What, what's your outside of the U S where do you taste most often? You were uh, in England I mean, kind of recently for, for wine too, right? I, I, I was, but it's, it was always just London for, okay. for work. It, I've never, I've not done the, the English wine country yet. I have some friends who have, and it sounds really cool. And every time I get to an opportunity to taste those wines, I, I enjoy it, you know, especially sparkling stuff, but there's still wines being made too, that are interesting. And that, that, that could be on the short list for, um, you know, when, when the travel into Europe comes back around. But my, mostly France. That's really where most of my professional experience is, which is sort of a good, not a bad benchmark to have, right? In, in terms not. of certainly not, right? It's like so much gets com- in the wine world gets compared to France. So you know that 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 could be useful to tap into here as we get a little bit more granular. So the topic of today is how you know how to get the most out of your wine country visit. I mean, I. I bet out there, just like out here on the East Coast, I mean, I was talking to a couple different friends of mine who work in different aspects of the industry up in the Finger Lakes, and you can't get an Airbnb or a VRBO or whatever anywhere around there from like now till the end of the year. Really? Like complete, like everything booked. Oh, that makes me happy to hear for the region then. And it's probably like that in California. I mean, people not really going out of state as much, everybody discovering what's in their backyard for the first time. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, even I, I have plenty of friends um, here in San Francisco. Obviously, a lot of us with you know more professional sort of office jobs have been working remotely, and I have multiple friends that sort of packed up and, and moved up to wine country for the duration of the pandemic, just because. Well, my goodness, if you're going to sit in front of a computer somewhere, wouldn't you rather it be in Sonoma Valley? Yeah, why? Why not? And and so for that person or a person who is traveling or commuting or day tripping or whatever, I think it's pretty exciting to talk about this subject. Like how can so many people who are going to be revisiting these regions this summer, maybe for the first time, maybe not, but get even more out of their experience than than they ever thought they would. So I'm curious, what is the, can you think of like your, your most favorite wine trip or the best time you had at a winery or maybe it's you know sort of a few days in a whole region, but just something unique that sticks out. Wow, that's um, there's there's a lot to that. Let me think. I would say probably the most special experience that I've had was when I was in Champagne, um, in Reims and Autovier and was able to visit Dom Perignon and the calves there and spent a lot of time in and around Reims. So between, between Dom Perignon, which obviously is a, is a huge, huge mass brand, but really wonderful as part of the history of wine and particularly sparkling wine. And to be able to taste with their, um, with their winemaker was a particularly incredible experience. And we did a, a vertical tasting, which I think is something that's really interesting if you're at a house that ages wines, that is always really fun. But to do that, and then two days later, going to the house of Jacques Salos in Avis, and then tasting with Anselm Salos, who's the winemaker there. Those two experiences, I think within a couple of days of each other, both in France, were probably the highlights of my sort of wine drinking career. I think they were both incredibly special and so incredibly different um, because like I said, you know, Don Perignon, huge house owned by LVMH, history, you know, it's a 600 year old abbey out in the countryside. And then being at um, Hotel Les Avis, which is where, where Anson Salos makes his wines, which are impossible to find, very, very, very small amount of wines makes, you know, he's so involved, him and his son, um, with everything, grower, producer, they only use their own grapes. It's biodynamic, such a wildly different experience, but, um, to be walked through both of those sort of series of wines with those winemakers, you know, one being like a, at Don Perignon, you know, a younger guy who's very up on pop culture and things. And then 
to to speak with um Anzam Sados who who's is much more of like a a hippie artist with you know his his barrels in what looks like functionally a garage in the middle of nowhere in the French countryside um was was really special and I think really indicative both of the region and of how different tastings can be and also how differently winemakers approach their wines, which I think, you know, is, is something that you and I had sort of have chatted about a little bit before about, you know, as something, if you can swing it during a wine visit, if you can taste with the winemaker, absolutely schedule your trip around it. So, you know, even that, that opportunity that I had with Anselm Sidos, um, when I was staying there, I was just in the region anyway and found out that if we stayed another day, we would be able to taste with him. So changed flights, changed hotel reservations, changed everything to be able to have that opportunity. And it makes all the difference in the world. Um, and particularly in, in, and I'll say if anybody else decides to go to Uggies and do that, um, bring a translator if you don't speak um, pretty good colloquial French, but yeah, that, uh, as soon as you, <laughs> you leave Paris and, and, uh, it's a little, a little less uh, easy to get around uh, in English, but um, yes. well, so I mean, you touched on a, a lot there, which I think is important and and are good things to consider when really sort of visiting any wine region. Which are so you, I mean, you talked about a, a, a large, well-known historic house, uh, and then a much a small grower um, who is sort of on the you know edge of what's modern in Champagne and. And so that's a great juxtaposition to do, I think, probably in most wine regions. I mean, certainly here in New York, something that I, I like to do when when I'm in the Finger Lakes is, I mean, one of the oldest wineries in the entire country, it was actually the first bonded winery, which is called Pleasant Valley Wine Company on Cuca Lake with architecture, original architecture and buildings going back to the 19th century. I mean, this was a huge, huge winery, one of the largest in the country, and that's the entire U.S. wine industry was for a minute centered around that part of of New York in Hammondsport, and you know it's kind of a secret. Not too many people know about this, and there, there's a couple other of these old structures that go back to the 19th century that are in the Finger Lakes. So, I think taking the time experiencing these large historic wineries is a good way to kind of add, like I hate to say it, but like just almost more of like a museum aspect to your day so maybe you're 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 using using your noggin a bit and not drinking as fast maybe that'll help later keep you awake at dinner i don't know but i (laughs) I like uh i like that juxtaposition of like the historic with what's new and exciting yeah and i think sorry paul go ahead go go ahead go i was just gonna say it's you know even one that's like one that everyone's heard of, one that you know that you drink at home, and then one that you know that you might never get the chance to find again, something that may not be sold in wine stores or is very difficult to find. I think if you run across an opportunity like that, obviously go for it, right? Yes. That brings up another great point that I want to touch on later when we get to a slightly different subject. Okay. So champagne, you love it. I know that that's one (laughs) of your favorite things to drink. So it makes sense that that was one of the most special wine trips that you've been on. I feel similarly about Alsace. I was able to spend a harvest there working at a winery and also staging at a a very uh, well-run two Michelin star restaurant. And I love those aromatic white grapes, Germanic white grapes, Riesling, Gewurztraminer, Muscat, Pinot Gris, things like that. And the only red grape in Alsace, Pinot Noir. I mean, who doesn't love Pinot Noir? And it's super interesting. It's something other than Burgundy. It's it's uh, you know sort of the other French Pinot Noir, and again, there's incredible history there. There's so many great restaurants, um, great towns. I mean, you certainly, if you take a trip to a place like that, don't need to spend all of your time just you know going to winery after winery or or getting you know letting that stress you out. Relax, enjoy the other sights and sounds and everything too. So that that brings me to something else that I think is interesting to point out, which is the differences. Between visiting a winery in the U.S. versus abroad, whether that be uh, in Europe, which I, is really, the, again, the only place I can speak to, but I'm curious if you find this in some of the other places that you've been. So tasting rooms in the U.S. are quite large at most wineries in comparison. 
I can think back to when I was before I was in the industry and I was in my early 20s going into tasting rooms in Santa Barbara, California, and you go, you pay, you get your glass and you get it to taste like, I don't know, six very small pours of wine. That's exactly how it is out here in New York. It's really not any different. And I'm kind of talking like pre-COVID times. So when uh, when you just walked in and paid and went up to the bar. In Europe, if there is a tasting room, in my experience, it's much, 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 much smaller than the ones here. And sometimes there's just not a tasting room. And maybe if you wander up to a winery, and you just kind of wander around for a while, uh, a nice French person will come and start speaking at you in French. And maybe if you can <laughs> use your hands and communicate that you you heard the wines are good and you would like to buy some or try some. I mean, I've literally just ended up in basements with people who I'd never met uh, or in barns on dirt floors, tasting wines, like just absolutely no tasting room at all. So that's a big difference that I've noticed in my experience. So I'm curious, is that what is that an observation you share? That is so interesting. And I do think so. Absolutely. Um, and I wonder how much of that has to do with just even the literal idea of old world and new world. Absolutely. Most of the, the you know, the established wineries that you go to here in California, you know, as you said, New York, um, those the, the buildings were created around a tasting room, whereas um, a lot of the places in Europe or, you know, and I think my experience in South Africa or um, in Australia, um, where I've also tasted, which I forgot when you asked me about the Southern Hemisphere earlier, I think it sort of depends on the house itself. But I, I do think that that idea of like a formal tasting room, like a giant tasting room, does feel very American. Um, obviously, a place like Vuvtico in France is going to have also a beautifully merchandised tasting room because um, that's a huge business for them. But yeah, absolutely. For the most part, um, you know, wandering through like dirt roads, tractor trails in the Mornington Peninsula in Australia, absolutely found our way into somebody's barn um, for and, and had, had wine on hay bales. Um, that's definitely something that I feel like happens more often in other places than it does in the U.S. And, you know, and, and to your to your point, like what magical experiences that can be. And I think I wonder how much of that is kind of like getting off of the, the beaten wine trail in that sense. Um, so, you know, thinking about like if you're in Champagne, if you're going to be in France or Epernay, um, it's going to be a lot of the bigger houses because of the real estate or same if you're, you know, on Silverado trail in Napa, it's going to be bigger places. But if you take a left down the second dirt road and see where it takes you, I think you're much more likely to come across um, an experience that feels a little more unusual and a little, a little more casual, you know, to your point, running into somebody who's out there making their wine with a pitchfork in hand. Yeah, I mean, not not to say that like none of those super rustic, cool experiences couldn't happen either here or elsewhere in the new world, but yeah, they 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 do tend to to exist more in places that have been making wine for perhaps centuries as opposed to you know a century and a half or so. And, but uh, you know, their tasting rooms here in the U.S. I think right now we have them. They're they're certainly a part of the identity that is going wine tasting. So take advantage of them. I mean, they're nowadays in in wherever we are in this pandemic, lots of wineries accept reservations for tastings now, which I know has been going very well for wineries. People who book reservations tend to buy more wine than people who just wander up to the tasting room bar, pay, have their tasting and get back and go to the next one. So that so definitely, you know, I want to encourage people to make reservations and it just seems to make the whole process better. So from all the wineries that I've spoken to, no, that's not going away at all. I, I think the reservation system is pretty much here to stay in terms of sort of the casual tasting room. Yeah, and, and, and for I good reason. that's the case because you're right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a much more pleasant experience when you feel like you've made time for the winery and the winery has made time for you. I think that makes a big difference in your experience and your enjoyment of it for sure. So glad, you know, we talk about the silver linings of COVID. I can totally see that that's one of them. Yeah. And the other thing I'll say is, you know, and it, you'll, you'll have some experience with this from having, you know, worked in restaurants once upon a time in your life. 
when you go to a winery, like go with the flow, go with their program, do the recommended tasting. I mean, maybe, maybe there's not a choice. Maybe it's just one flight that you're going to get, but whatever it is, don't ask for substitutions. There's a, there's a method to the madness. There's a rhyme and reason that the winery has put this tasting together and chances are it's to give you the best experience. So I, I, I want to encourage people to, to really go through that, you know, curriculum while you, while you're at the tasting room and, and not try to sort of pick and choose and put together your paint by numbers tasting, because chances are that's, that's just how you're going to have the best time. If you're going to go the tasting room route, which leads me to something else, which I, I think about all the time, having been someone that has had to organize tastings for mostly trade in the wine industry, but I know a lot of winery owners and a lot of winemakers would be totally happy if anyone, not just a member of the trade, emailed ahead of time. You know, let's say you're you're a, a semi-serious wine drinker, right? You're in a wine tasting group with your friends. You own a, a small wine fridge or cellar in your house or apartment or whatever. And you reach out to the winery ahead of time and say, hey, um, we're happy to pay for the tastings and for the time, but we were wondering if we could actually taste with the winemaker. Or, you know, could we go into the to the cellar and like taste right out of a barrel? Experiences like that are totally doable. Some wineries are not going to say yes, either just because maybe they don't have the bandwidth or they're, they're just not set up with that, or maybe something's going on, construction or whatever. But many wineries, I, th- I think more than people might realize, would be amenable to that because for them, they're like, oh, these are people that we can be hospitable to and show off a little bit. Maybe they'll even join our wine club, you know, or if we provide such good hospitality, they'll buy one extra bottle of wine. The, you know, the winery's in it to win it too. So don't be shy about reaching out and asking for some sort of extra cool experience. And some wineries are even offering these as like little VIP packages um, that you can find on their websites. So um, is that something that you think people would be into? Yeah, I, I think absolutely. And I, in the conversations that I have with people, and this happens a lot, you know, friends from out of town come and they're like, oh, we're going to be in Napa for the weekend. You know, what, what should we do? And I, you know, I think you're so dead on that whatever you sort of see on the generic idea of a tasting, it doesn't mean that's all there is. And I think most people will think, oh, well, they're, they're, they're too busy. I don't want to bother them. But I think the idea that the people who make wine in regions like New York and and like California, like part of the reason that they make it is because they love it and they want to share it. And so reaching out to say, you know, it's not like, could you do me a solid? It's like, can you share this thing that you love so much with me? And I I think you're right. I think people will, you know, you you never know who's going to answer back and what they might offer because I think they are excited to share, share those things with people and get people as excited about their wines as they are. So yeah, absolutely shoot them an email, ask, can't hurt. All they're going to say is yeah. no. And then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and uh, you know what, even they'll at least know that you're especially interested and maybe when you make your reservation and, you know, you'll get poured something cool that's maybe not for sale yet. Or again, maybe you can't go back and taste right out of the barrel. Maybe they'll have the barrel sample ready for you. Good things can happen when you, when you do send that sort of special note of interest. And uh, here's another like, to even level up from there, if uh, if the right time of year permits it, ask to go out in the vineyard. If the vineyard is, if they have a vineyard on site, take a stroll through through the grapevines and and just let the 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 owner, the grape grower, the vineyard manager, the winemaker, whoever it is, let them show you literally the wine that you're drinking, where those grapes came from. I find that that's a, a pretty neat experiences, and I mean, again, I never I never met a winery owner who, who, who didn't like to talk about their, you know, their vineyard. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. I'm curious for you yes. when it comes down to things like that. I mean, what else, the idea of tasting out of the barrel, I think is so interesting meeting the winemaker, of course, what do you, and if you can separate yourself from sort of the professional Paul Brady and just as someone who enjoys these experiences, like what, what other kinds of things feel impactful to you? Like, what do you love it when a wine, when a wine tasting room does, or, you know, what, what are some of the things that have been 
felt different or interesting or intimate to you, sort of separate from the idea of a professional tasting? I think both here, – here's something that I think crosses over into both – really into any tasting, whether it's um, a trade tasting or uh, if you're a guest at the winery. Uh, being respectful of time. When you, when you own a winery or you're a winemaker, you have a lot of products that you want to show people. Less is more. Um, I think a great number of wines to tackle during a tasting. I like the number five or six, five or six, but definitely not more than six and even like five. I just think that's there's something magic about that number. You can sort of fit that in in a 45 to hour long tasting with whoever it is that you're doing the tasting with. So, you know, the winery should learn to be respectful of of everyone's time and and try not to overdo it. And and I think the guests too, you know, don't don't go for too much at one winery. Um, because you know you're you you got you want to keep your palate sharp. You want to visit several wineries in a day. Probably you made the effort to get all the way out to wine country. So you know don't don't ask and and definitely again this kind of goes back to going with the program. Don't ask for more. Don't make the dad joke that is oh feel free to you know fill her all the way up or whatever. Just you know <laughs> don't don't do that anywhere. But also don't do it at a winery. And again go with the winery's program and you know be respectful of your time and the winemaker's time and that goes for the winemaker or the owner of you know our time as as guests or members of the trade. Love um, that. I think that makes a lot of sense. Right? I mean keep it, you know, keep it moving, keep it interesting and and then when it's over, you know, go out on a high note. Both yeah, guest exactly. and owner or winemaker. Um, I mean, so and it like, does kind of uh, remind me of a morning that I spent at Via Cao Samon doing a, a 12 bottle vertical tasting. And let me tell you that the rest of that day is a little bit foggy. So yeah, yeah I mean, it's almost like the five old, probably a better like, idea. It's like the old car salesman trick, you know, you're at the dealership and they want to just, they figure out a way there to keep you there like all day. So you don't go to another dealership, you know, it's, <laughs> <laughs> there's something to that. Um, Okay, so I'm curious when you are going to visit wine country with friends, what what is a typical group looking for? Let's for the most part thinking, you know, non-industry. That is a great question and I think it's so funny because the I, I think that the groups that I end up taking or who ask me for advice are going to be so different from the ones that ask you and um I, I have a sneaking suspicion that that the questions that I get asked are going to run a little bit more to the to the basic <laughs> end of things but I think there's a mix. Um, well, that's definitely the majority of people who go to wineries. So that's that's what I think <laughs> is important for you know, questions for groups like that to be answered. And also it's good for, for wineries to know. For sure. Um, I think, and, and again, depending on who it is, right. Um, I obviously am, <clears throat> excuse me, a, you know, never mind how old I am professional woman. I have a lot of single woman friends, you know, if we're going up to wine country, probably the first, the first thing that people want, and I'm you know, embarrassed to say this, that it's less actually about the wine and more about the experience and the, you know, the views and how beautiful is the space, which again, I think all of that is important. I mean, as much as I've loved tasting, you know, in a barn on a hay barrel, it is really nice to be in a really pleasant environment. And obviously like in the age of Instagram, everybody wants a gorgeous backdrop. And I think to, you know, the, the idea that as a general rule, the wineries that we're going to go to are, no one's pouring swill. So there's, there's table stakes in terms of how good the wine is going to be. And so beyond that, I think people want a beautiful space and um, to, to be able to feel really a part of the environment and the, the space. So being in Sonoma or Napa, having it feel like Sonoma or Napa, you know, whereas I think there's a couple, I've, I've taken people to places that sort of, it's all designed to look like, like a Tuscan villa. And that's almost a little bit jarring when you're in a place that, you know, is otherwise so California. I think there, you know, so there's, there's the environmental idea and, and how beautiful it is. I think places like Scribe, Winery, great wine, sure, but also the space that they've cultivated and the sort of experience that you have there 
is phenomenal and that counts a lot towards their success. They have a great reputation for that. It is very much like an experiential kind of tasting. And so, you know, beyond, beyond it being beautiful, I think also, you know, is there a cool story behind the house? And if there's something unique about the history or if the winemaker, I mean, Catherine Hall um, in, in Napa is a great example of this. She has an incredible art collection. And so her, her vineyard and her, and where they do tastings doubles as a modern art gallery. That's obviously going to be a huge draw. Um, and it's something that she herself is very proud of and is very involved in. And it feels very in line with, with her and her brand and, and being in that space. It's very, very much a personality of, of that winery. So I think finding something that is whatever your differentiator is um, and, and really making sure that the experience hits on that and that someone coming there understands what does set you apart other than, you know, could I tell your wines in a blind tasting? And so I I think, so what it sounds to me, it's like, there's definitely uh, something to being a winery that has that additional experience, whether it's something like art or live music or just an incredible setting in, you know, with in the mountains or near the ocean, whatever that is, if you're a winery, that's going to be a draw to certain groups who want to taste wine, but also kind of relax and hang out. Yeah, absolutely. I think I that's think, a lot I think of people. I think about that's it the majority. Yeah. yeah, I think that's definitely the far majority of people who are who are going to wineries. And so I think something to remember is definitely not every winery is that, even if the wine is expensive or has some prestigious reputation. Sometimes you get to those wineries and they end up being the most sort of underwhelming places. Um, so on that note, I would encourage people to definitely look ahead, know where you're going just because you love the wine and the wine is good. Doesn't mean it's going to entertain your five other friends with that, uh, incredible setting or other meaning to that place. Uh, if you're I think just that's a- totally right, Paul. And something that you just said is, is really important when we're talking about groups, right? Is understanding what everyone in the group wants out of this trip. Um, because, you know, if, you know, whenever you come visit me out here in California um, and I take you to wine country, it will be a very different itinerary than when my sorority sisters come visit me. And I think understanding first and foremost what people are expecting and what people want to get out of it is, is step one. And that's not to say that you can't do a mix of all of those things. And, you know, absolutely. If I tell someone like, you know, this isn't going to be the one where you want to whip out your camera, but I really want you to taste these wines. You know, absolutely. That should always be a part of the experience. I mean, the whole point is wine, but um, I think, I think you can't ignore the experience. Yeah. So it's like, I mean, do the gig, you know, if you're the, if you're the one leading sort of the trip, making the plans and you're, you have your own wine fridge, but your five friends have not, you know, got to that level yet keep that in mind and, you know, dangle some carrots in front of them in other ways. Right. Yeah. How, okay. How many wineries in a day is too many? This is such an interesting question. Um, I think for me, it depends on how early you're comfortable starting. I have, um, a bit of an, of an old fashioned sort of aversion to, to drinking wine before 10 a.m., Um, I just find, I don't find, I I don't think that my, my palate is, is ready to really have the complexities of wine before like 10 AM. Like if it's, if it's between a couple hours of when I've had my morning diet Cokes or coffee or whatever, I'm not ready to taste. So thinking about if I'm not starting until 11, you know, three is probably the max I would want to do in a day. One at 11, one at two, and maybe one at four or something like that. I think argue, you know, if you can, if you can do less than that, that's ideal because I think you do want to give each place your attention and you, you know, it, it's not, it's, it's not fraternity row. We're not trying to like drink as much as we can in each place and like hop around. So 
my, my personal number is probably three. I've done more than that. I've done less than that and had great times doing all of it. But I think one in late morning and then two in the afternoon evening is, is the sweet spot for me. Yeah. Okay. Honestly, I would have not known how to answer that question. So I'm really glad <laughs> that I asked you that because I, I mean, in the trade, you do like six a day. Yeah. And you, you definitely start at 9 a.m. And you're doing three in the morning, then lunch, and then three more. So that's great. So that's exactly half. Um, so whether you do, you know, maybe if you're morning people, you do two in the morning, eat a nice lunch, one in the afternoon, and then, you know, you're ready to wind down. Or, you know, if you want to start a little bit later, one in the morning, and then two after lunch. Uh, and then either yeah. way, you know, you make it to dinner on time. I think that's a great way to think about it. And, and you know, something else that kind of comes up a little bit is if you're tasting professionally versus tasting for entertainment or, you know, socializing and things like that. When I'm, when I'm doing tastings like that with friends or with a group, we're actually drinking the wine. You know, no one's spitting, no one's taking a tiny sip and setting it back down. Generally, we are sort of enjoying it. And I think you do actually run into to volume issues if you are um, actually sort of like drinking wine that way. Whereas I am, I would love to hear from you when you're doing those tastings like that, presumably you're spitting or, you know, you're, you're not knocking back full tastes of everything. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've done uh, like professional wine tasting trips in the month of January when I've also been like, you know, putting myself through dry January and I literally <laughs> spit everything. And didn't drink at all. And then, you know, most of the time, uh, even if it's not dry January or Sobertober or whatever, if you're not cleansing, um, then yeah, you're, you're spitting most, most of it because you're probably going to, if you're on a wine trip, you're probably going to have wine with lunch, right? I mean, you don't have to, but if it's, if you're in the trade and it's a wine trip, that's probably something you're going to do. Um, but, you know, if, if you could, all, you know, you can use lunch as a breather too, you know, to just, have some juice or just water or coffee, whatever you need to wake your palate back up for the afternoon. But no one will at a winery will ever look at you weird if at any level, if you're like, if you want to spit and they will get you a vessel to spit into. And honestly, they'll probably think you know what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that again, you, you bring up something that, uh, you know, makes me think of, Again, fo follow the the protocol because they're going to pour you probably like anywhere from one and a half to two ounces of wine and don't ask for more. Just drink that much because there's going to be other opportunities to drink during the day and it's going to be more than you think. Yeah. And then if you really loved it and you're like, man, I could have more of that, you should buy a bottle. Should buy a case. <laughs> or um, a case. Yeah. Depending on how much trunk space you have. So I'm I'm curious as to what you're going to think about this. So I get asked often, and this relates usually more to, to New York. So Finger Lakes, Hudson Valley, Long Island too, but Long Island's a little bit different because the, I mean, the North Fork, I mean, it's, it's an island. So you only have so much land mass to work with, but people ask me where to stay when, when they're going to visit wine country. Uh, so let's, let's, we can certainly talk California, but let's, let's use New York Finger Lakes or Hudson Valley. Should, you know, should we rent a house in the country or should we stay in one of the nearby cities is a question I get asked a lot. Um, I have pros and cons. Do you feel strongly about one or the other? I feel pretty strongly about staying as close as you can to where you want to be tasting, both because I think, you, you want to be in the same environment. If, if what you're really wanting to do is sort of like experience that region, the idea of like sitting on a commuter train to, to then get there to me sort of like breaks the spell a little bit. And I think also something that you said earlier, Paul, the idea of sort of being respectful of, of time and, and of the experience with the wines and with the winemakers, the idea of sort of like, rushing to catch a train or like having to like hop back in the car to miss rush hour and having to feel like that puts pressure on your experience that I think, you know, whether, whether you realize it or not, it's going to impact your enjoyment. Um, so, you know, make it as easy as you can for yourself to, to enjoy the region and enjoy the wines. And also, you know, don't ever want anyone 
driving when they're drinking. So, you know, if you can, um, if you can stay close, that's, it feels like a, a pretty, pretty big win to me. Yeah. The driving thing is big. Um, if you or someone in your group is doing the driving and you do want to do the, the rent a house in the country out near the vineyards or in the, the national forest area or wherever it is definitely good to, you know, sort of make sure the last tasting that you're doing is like near the house. And if you're the one driving, you've either been spitting or you've literally only had, you know, a glass or two. So, um, that could be sort of a nice treat for you, the driver, make that last winery visit somewhere close to the house so you can, you know, enjoy yourself and easily and safely get everybody home. And so I'm going to offer an alternative to that because I think there's maybe some of this might not be something that everybody thinks of. If there is a nearby city and that city is kind of cool with some things to do and with some lodging options, as alluring as it is to get the place with the nice big fire pit on the lake or you know in the woods or in the mountains or whatever it is and buy all local produce and food and somebody cooks and that that's a lot of fun and you know like we said earlier just be safe and don't drink and drive and live your best life but consider the city option because that's that's a this is another solution for the driving so when you end your day in a city you typically have more car sharing options or taxis or public transportation and bars and restaurants and sometimes even winery tasting rooms in the city that you can easily get to and get back to your lodging, whether it's a hotel or renting an apartment or whatever, fairly easy. And oftentimes, again, that makes it so that at some point in the day, no one has to drive and no one has to cook. So I do think that there are, are definitely some pros to, to going the city option. A friend of mine not long ago, it was his 35th birthday and was like, I want to go to the Finger Lakes. Where should I stay? And there were just not, it was only sort of in the last year or two that Airbnb really took off. And now that there are, now there's nice options that are well set up for that. For a while, it was like the options were few and far between. And I said, you know, I think for a group of people in their thirties that presumably all like to drink and eat, you know, at the end of the day, don't make anybody drive anymore. Just get some hotel rooms. I mean, I'm not doesn't have to be like the prom after party, but as adults, you know, get get a bunch of hotel rooms and bar hop or restaurant hop or just take advantage of the city. And and there are some cool cities and towns that have good lodging and really cool regional dining and drinking options. So I think that's just another sort of tool to have in the arsenal. Does that does that sound uh you know are you amenable yeah i think so and i mean obviously it also depends what kind of distance we're talking about right i mean if you're going from here to like i don't know san luis obispo like that's a three and a half hour drive ain't nobody trying to do any of that but from here to sonoma plaza it's 45 minutes that's absolutely a, a doable um sort of drive if you want to have all of the advantages of of san francisco and still you know do those those wine regions i think but i will also say that honestly um again some of the most incredible experiences that i've had with wine and things is and and this is very very few and far between but actually some some wineries have cottages or little houses and things, carriage house um, on their property that you can rent. Um, I did this at Blackbird Vineyard in wine country here. And what an incredibly magical experience to wake up in the vineyard and be able to sort of like walk into the town square, you know, there in, in Sonoma and, and be able to do that. So I think depending on what, what you want and what your group wants, if, if you want Michelin star, yeah, maybe it's not going to be in these kind of smaller towns and, and you'll want to do the, the city thing and, and day trip to wine country. But I think if you have if you have an opportunity and what you want to experience is wine country, go for it. Yeah. And I should I should have prefaced by uh, saying that I, I, I don't necessarily didn't necessarily mean um, 
like New York City or Toronto or San Francisco or Oakland or whatever, but like, you know, in a case like a place like the Finger Lakes, something, a place like Geneva or Ithaca, where, you know, you have these college towns that have hospitals hospitality offerings now like breweries and other stuff right so not necessarily new york city or one one of these huge cities and then you know something like saint helena in napa i mean i know i stayed at a hotel there and was able to walk to to press and um the awesome like burger drive-through drive-in place that everybody loves uh, (laughs) right in the middle yes yeah so i do like I, i i think it you know, both are cool, but uh, the city option is maybe not thought of quite as much. Um, one thing, that, uh, another thing is when you're there, and this blows my mind that there are some people who, and I've seen this, like when they when you get to the restaurant at night, like I'll have friends or peers or whatever that all of a sudden grab the wine list and like the first thing they go for is like something from France or Italy. <laughs> and I'm like, no, what are you doing? I mean, there, yeah, we've been tasting wines from this place all day, but now we're at this cool restaurant and we came here because we knew it had a cool wine program. So you know what it probably has? Really cool and rare and exciting, old and rare or new and exciting stuff that you probably can't get anywhere else. So I think it's good to lean into local when you're dining in wine country. You know, you can when, when you get back home, you can you can get back to your your beloved Burgundy and Bordeaux and uh, and <laughs> German Rieslings and everything. But when you're in wine country, be in wine country. I mean, like, ask if they have any off book stuff. I was at Press one time, which is a is and was I hope still is a, a fantastic restaurant in Napa, incredible uh, seller of old California stuff. And I was really interested in like drinking Zinfandel with serious age. So this was just a few years ago and I there wasn't really any on the menu, but I asked if they had any off books in Fidel. And I was nobody like at the time. I mean, I'm still nobody, but like even <laughs> like didn't was not really like identified as being a member of the trade or anything like that. Just asked if they had any off book Zinfandel. And she brought out three bottles, a 91, a 92, and a 93 uh vintage of different sing uh, um different bottlings of either single vineyard or mostly blends of Ridge Zinfandels. And they were all, su- I, w- I was like, right, can I afford these wines? And she said, yeah, we'll make it work. Cause I had given her my budget earlier and then it was amazing. I mean, we popped the cork on one, tasted it and we were, it was, it was a win right away. So I, I think that again, just think of instances like that and, you know, try to just excite your, your, your palate by, by making those discoveries. What do you think? I think that's such an interesting point, Paul. And also, you know, one of the other reasons I think to do that besides, you know, what just feels obvious when in Rome um, is the idea that in a lot of tasting rooms, the, the most food you're probably going to ever have taste, be tasting with, in a tasting room is like maybe cheese or charcuterie or breadsticks or something like that. And those same wines that you've had from that region all day are going to taste dramatically different when you have them with food. And that's a whole new experience. And it's a whole new way to taste wines that you may have had or something similar in that region. And I think for me, it's always really exciting to see if, you know, the sort of that, that particular ridge of Sonoma Valley, tasting it just in a glass, and then that particular ridge of Sonoma Valley and having it, whether the same year, different year, whatever, um, with steak or whatever, really kind of changes the way that you experience it. And I think that the interplay of, of food with wine is something to consider too. Yeah. It, I, I love eating at restaurants in wine country. It's uh, it's a different experience than eating in the city and everything's different. The service is different. Just the flow of the night just is regional. And, and again, you, you know, like really what I'm talking about here is just when in Rome, exactly like you said. And you know, notice those things and eat the local food with the local wine. I mean, that's, that's pretty, uh, what goes together, grow, what grows together, goes together and all that good <laughs> stuff. Um, you know, just, uh, you know, do it up when you're there and you can drink your Chablis and your, um, Kendall Jackson Chardonnay when you get home. Um, okay. So I, I sort of saved for the end, you kind of came up with this, like almost sort of rapid fire series of questions. For me, I believe. <laughs> Do you want to go ahead and start reading those and feel f- free to add any more to uh Sure. To- totally. Um I will I will fire them away. And again, this is 
you know, you and I are are both involved in one in very different ways. So the the kinds of questions that I get asked are very different than the ones that you get asked. Um, right, but those are the those are the, the questions you get asked. I mean, again, are are most people. So I mean, the trade is like one percent sure. of all people. So I think this is again, I'm, I'm more interested in these questions. Okay, I don't have a buzzer or anything to ring when I think you're out of time. So we're just gonna have to. <laughs> that would be fun next time. <laughs> okay, so before a winery. Should you eat before you go? And if so, what? I think it's not hugely important. Like if you're if you're someone who just doesn't eat breakfast, you know, and you you get up and you you have your cup of coffee or tea or, or juice, whatever it is in the morning that just perks you up and gets you going, you know, it's fine. Especially if you're if you're if it's just until like if you're just doing one winery before lunch. Just, you know, you know your body, like pay attention to what you're drinking. If if it's a one flight of wine and it's, you know, one and a half ounce pours, I would say you're going to be fine by the time you get to lunch unless, you know, again, only only you know your system and, and all that stuff. So you got to kind of just figure that out on your own. I mean, if if you're like me and you didn't have time to eat breakfast, not a big deal. You can certainly get through your first tasting, you know, fueled on your caffeine or your juice or whatever it was that uh you know, your sparkling water, whatever gets you going in the morning. I would say, you know, otherwise eat like your normal breakfast that you would have on a work day and, and not eat like a big, big, big brunch or something like that before going wine tasting. It is, it's best to, to go into the tasting, like feeling good, feeling almost a little bit hungry. Hmm, okay. That great advice going a little, just a little bit hungry. That's great. Something else that people ask, and and a lot of tasting rooms will offer this idea of like, you know, do you have provisions with the wine? Some places do cheese, some people do charcuterie, some people do whatever. Do you recommend tasting with food or is it better to taste without? Yeah, so a couple of things on that. There, There's, you know, no doubt, even if it's just some simple crackers, little oyster crackers, I love those things. Um, <laughs> if you're if you're going from wine to wine, yeah, eat a cracker between each glass because you're going to, you know, fill your palate with like salt and savoriness and that's going to sort of cleanse you and get you ready for this new set of like very, hopefully very like refreshing, satiating flavors that are, you know, meant to be different. So a, a little bit of salt, you know, and, and uh, carbs in between each glass, I think is totally fine. One thing is I see a lot of people rinsing their glasses out with water. You don't really need to do that. You know, you're, you're almost better off like letting, letting that little residual bit of wine coat your glass. And then when, when they do pour you the next wine, if it's, if it's, you know, maybe you're tasting six wines, but you only have three glasses in front of you, or maybe you only have one glass for all six wines. When the when the new wine comes in, give it a good swirl. Let it coat your glass. You're better off keeping your glass sort of coated with alcohol than than to continue diluting it with water. That is a super interesting point. And you think that it's I think most people do that because they're like, oh well, if the wines mingle, I won't like know what it's gonna taste like. But really the worst thing you can do for that wine is water it down. Yeah, I, I mean, I wish I could explain the, the chemistry, but uh, in general, yeah, uh, you know, a little bit of water um, is, is it's just not really going to do anything to enhance your your tasting experience. Got it. Something else, and the one that I get asked a lot is like, "Am I supposed to spit this out?" Which you answered earlier, so thank you for that. Um, unless you want to hit high points again with that. But another thing, as we're going, particularly like a lot of the houses here a lot of them have wine clubs and sometimes in the tasting rooms, particular glasses will be wine club only or certain flights will be wine club only and things like that. So I get asked a lot, well, should I join the wine club? And I would love to know your opinions on wine clubs. So yes, in general, you should. I mean, you definitely don't need to join them all, but I mean, the the simplest way to think about a wine club is Okay, well, what is a wine club? Typically, it's something of of this ilk, right? You you sign up for a mailing list. You're going to get an email, and you're going to say the the winery is going to tell you your wine club shipment is arriving, or choose from this set of wines and put your mixed case together, or whatever it is, and you get your little discount. I mean, there's always an incentive to be in a wine club, whether it's a discount or a uh, you know, only wine club members are getting some allocated bottling, whatever it is. I mean, there's, there's a perk to being in a wine club and 
it just means that wine's going to show up to your house. And, you know, we all want wine to show up to our house. It's, I mean, we're going to spend that money on wine at the store or at a restaurant. So joining a wine club is just spending your money in advance. And it's almost never not a deal. Uh, it's, it's typically the winery for wine club is sacrificing something on their end of the margin to, to make the wine club happen. So wine clubs are definitely consumer friendly. I love that. And I think something else that I, that I find a lot, um, and I, I mentioned earlier that there are particularly here um, in, in California wine country, there are perks sort of outside of the tasting room experience um, often for a wine club. And this is the reason that I belong to a lot of them, even though I, I live alone and can't possibly drink all of the wine, <laughs> all of the wine clubs that I'm a member of. You know, I do a valiant, valiant effort, but, you know, a lot of them will have something sort of like, you know, like I was mentioning the Blackbird Vineyard has a cottage on their property. If you are a wine club member, you can rent that. And, you know, these other sort of experiences um, that are open, only open to wine club members. And I think that's you know, a great little perk. And, and, and to your point, the wine club is never going to rip you off. I think some people just might have the same problem as me, which is not really a problem at all if you think about it, of just having maybe a little too much wine. But, you know, now that we're coming out of COVID, I can, uh, I'm sure I can invite some people over to help me with that. Yeah. And next time I'm out there, we'll, we'll do a swap, we'll swap <laughs> some New York for California. Um, yeah. And you know, there's as many perks as there are wineries, you know, and, and, you know, another one could be that like you get your tasting room fee waived every time you come in with a group or something like that, that could be a perk for wine club members only, or, you know, you just get uh, invited to events uh, and, and just all sorts of cool things. And, and again, and wineries know this, and I, I don't think um, that all of them realize this, but many of them do. I mean, they they love their wine clubs. They want you to be in their wine clubs and they like putting work into their wine club because it it's it's for a loyal fan base. And honestly, you know, they they might be better off spending their time doing something else because they typically are offering a discount on wine clubs. So you're, they're putting a lot of labor into the wine club for less of a profit margin. So wineries do it because they they do want to to have that relationship with the members of the club. Yes, they make a little bit of quick cash flow. Is it the best thing for their bottom line in the long run? Maybe, maybe not. So I think it's just good for for people to know that 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 wine club. Yes, it's profitable, but it's a, it it also legitimately is a way for for the winery to to you know meet and get to know their regulars for sure and i would even say you know and something that i think about too the the wine the wineries that i'm a club member at are usually my sort of like first wine when i'm in wine country because you know i, I belong to Pangloss and to the Silver Oak to me. And I usually end up going there first because partly because they know me. So if I have somebody in town, it's, it's usually a nicer experience because they know that I'm a member of the wine club and, you know, they're often I'm not going to say nicer to me, but they're aware of it. And also, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's a kind of loyalty, right? Um, if, if I, if I'm a member of their club, I, I, I feel inclined to sort of support them in a, in a longer run kind of idea. And I, I think that's a, a great kind of relationship for, for both me as a consumer of wine um, to, to have that kind of feeling and that, that experience towards the winery. And also great for the winery because I'm going to keep coming back. <laughs> I, so one last question I have for you on the, on the sort of group thing I'm visiting, you know, in a group. I'm wondering in your experience. So if you're, let's say you're going, you got a group of friends, but someone's not a wine drinker in the group. Now, the cool thing is, is that typically these areas of, of viticulture nowadays, there's usually quite a few breweries around or cider or, or distilleries, whatever it is. I, I'm sure that there's going to be something for that non-wine drinker to drink. But I'm wondering if you roll up to a wineries and certain wineries offer beer or mixed drinks or whatever too, if you're not a wine drinker, and you're out with a group of wine drinkers and you go into a wine a winery and you're not going to drink the wine me as like just kind of a hospitality industry person 
I'm going to assume that this wine, non-wine drinker at the winery is probably not a very adventurous drinker. And so I should probably have some very basic like beer, a recognizable brand of some sort or mixed, you know, of spirits or whatever, as opposed to like the, the, the very fringe local regional stuff. Am I wrong in thinking that? That is a very interesting question. And one that honestly, I've never really thought about partly because um, if people don't like wine, I'm not sure I want to be friends with them. Um, Also very true. But um, in, in the couple of experiences that I've had where people either don't drink um, for whatever their reason is, or um, I have, I have a friend who used to like to go tasting with me in the North Fork of Long Island, even though she can't drink wine because she can't have sulfides. So she can only have like a certain kind of wines that don't have sulfides added and all that sort of stuff. Generally in my experience, which again is, is going to be somewhat limited is that they're along for the experience and, and being in a beautiful place and enjoying the company. So honestly, keep some Pellegrino, around like that's generally what they want i don't think never in my experience have i been with someone who doesn't drink wine and goes to a winery and expects them to have some other kind of alcohol like never it would never even have occurred to me to ask that um i think having something that's sort of pleasant to pour in a glass other than still water what a lovely idea and and um, I do know a lot of places that that have Pellegrino or some other kind of sparkling water, maybe with a lemon or things like that, can be very refreshing. But I, I I don't know that that I would expect something else like beer or or spirits, unless that is something that that place also makes. And I, I know that there are places who you know maybe they'll make a mead in addition to the regular wine or, or or a cider or or something like that. And yeah, of course, in that instance, for sure. But otherwise. Nah, they came to a winery. If they don't want to drink wine, I don't totally think they But that's a well. great point, though. <laughs> like, have have some sort of nice non-alcoholic bubbly option just to, like, keep somebody refer- – I mean, what like, sparkling water or, like, a non-alcoholic sparkling cider, something like that could yeah. go a long way. Yeah. For sure. Okay. You mentioned something um, that I'm extremely interested in. We're going to have to talk about this off mic, um, but I've got an idea for our part two already. So I want to thank you for spending uh, this hour with me during, uh, you know, kind of the middle of your work week. Um, And it's been a lot of fun talking. And I think we got, uh, we got something done and anyone who listens will get something useful out of this and, I hope that you and uh, everybody has a great time during their wine country visits this summer. Thank you so much. This was super fun. And that, you know, what a great conversation to have with somebody who also really knows what they're talking about. So thanks again, Paul. I'm Kat for everyone who missed it in the beginning. We'll we'll do it again uh, with Kat Thompson. And if you have any wine country questions, hit us up at the website at The Corp Report. And Kat, thank you again. See you next time. Thank you. Bye.